0: All right, well, okay, this is different. I'm going to be reading from the Good News Bible this morning, and that's because I'm going to read the first chapter of the book of Esther. Esther is a story, and I think that if we hear it in the Good News Bible, it will be easier to hear it as a story. Um, It's not that the details aren't important. The details are important, and uh, the Good News Bible doesn't have all the, the cool details, but Um, it's got the theme of the story well enough that uh, we can appreciate it. So, my children, this is our bedtime story, okay, once upon a time. From his royal throne in Persia's capital city of Susa, King Xerxes ruled 127 provinces all the way from India to Sudan. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his officials and administrators The armies of Persia and Media were present, as well as the governors and the noblemen of the provinces. For six whole months, he made a show of the riches of the imperial court with all its splendor and majesty. After that, the king gave a banquet for all the men of the capital city of Susa, rich and poor alike. It lasted a whole week and was held in the gardens of the royal palace. The courtyard there was decorated with blue and white cotton curtains tied by cords of fine purple linen to silver rings on marble columns. Couches made of gold and silver had been placed in the courtyard, which was paved with white marble, red feldspar, shining mother of pearl, and blue turquoise. Drinks were served in gold cups, no two of them alike. And the king was generous with the royal wine. There were no limits on the drinks. The king had given orders to the palace servants that everyone could have as much as he wanted. Meanwhile, inside the royal palace, Queen Vashti was giving a banquet for the women. On the seventh day of his banquet, the king was drinking and feeling happy. So he called to the seven eunuchs, who were his personal servants, Mehuman, Bisla, a few other guys, And he ordered them to. I'm not even going to try. He ordered them to bring in Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. The queen was a beautiful woman, and the king wanted to show off her beauty to the officials and all his guests. But when the servants told Queen Vashti of the king's command, she refused to come. This made the king furious. Now, it was the king's custom to ask for expert opinion on questions of law and order. So he called for his advisors who would know what should be done. Those he most often turned to for advice were Karshana, Shethar, and some other guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, seven officials of Persia and Media who held the highest officers in the offices in the kingdom. He said to these men, I, King Xerxes, sent my servants to Queen Vashti with a command and she refused to obey it. What does the law say that we should do with her? Then Meimu Khan declared to the king and to his officials, Queen Vashti has insulted not only the king, but also his officials. In fact, every man in the empire, every woman in the empire will start looking down on her husband as soon as she hears what the queen has done. They'll say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to come to him, and she refused. When, I think they're going to say it like that um, when the wives of the royal officials of persia and, okay, you know what it's wonderful that you're laughing, I'll tell you why because there is humor in this story, sometimes it's very dark humor, but it's still it, it's still enough to you know uh, amuse us. okay, where was I? Every woman in the empire will start looking down on her husband they'll say. King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to come to him, and she refused. When the wives of the royal officials of Persia and Media hear about the queen's behavior, they will be telling their husbands about it before the day is out. Wives everywhere will have no respect for their husbands, and husbands will be angry with their wives. If it please your majesty, issue a royal proclamation that Vashti may never again appear before the king. Have it written into the laws of Persia and media so that it can never be changed. Then give her place as queen to some better woman. When your proclamation is made known all over the huge empire, every woman will treat her husband with proper respect, whether he's rich or poor. The king and his officials liked this idea, (laughs) huh? There weren't any women on his administration uh, <laughs> or cabinet. Uh, and the king did what Memukan suggested. To each of the royal provinces, he sent a message in the language and the system of writing of that province, saying that every husband should be the master of his home and speak with final authority. Oh, OK, this is just too good, and there's too much air. I won't be able to. <laughs> I won't be able to hit it all, but uh, you pretty much get it already. Uh, Esther is the last of the historical books. After this comes Job, and Job fits more in with the wisdom literature and uh, the psalms that that follow. It's possible Esther was the last book written. This is uh, uh, post-exile, because uh, now that Xerxes is king, Cyrus has already allowed the the exiled Jews, to return home to Jerusalem. But besides being uh, of the the historical genre of Hebrew scripture, there's something else about it that puts it in a special category. Um, It's in the category of other stories that reveal how the faithful believer behaves when in exile. And how does the faithful Jew or the faithful believer behave in exile? Well, we learn from Joseph, and we learn from Daniel, and we learn from Esther. All of them told in story form, and and all of them sharing similarities. For instance, Joseph found favor uh, with Potiphar, who was his first master, with the jailer that he served for a while, and with the pharaoh. And Daniel found favor. With Nebuchadnezzar and with uh, the person who is put in charge of him his not his valet but his mentor or whatever, Esther also finds favor in uh, the eyes of, of everyone that she encounters, everyone who's responsible for her and to whom she's responsible so they, they all have this where they find favor and that favor promotes them Joseph to the second place in the in uh, Egypt, Daniel to the highest position of all the officials of of, uh, Babylon, and and Esther to queen and her cousin Mordecai to second in all the nation of uh, Persia. Another thing that they share in common is they all experience a significant reversal. Something very bad is plotted against them, and it looks like disaster. But that is turned around and works in their favor. And, uh, and that reversal is, is beautiful. So uh, Esther shares these important features with Joseph and Daniel. They, all three also share a certain atmosphere uh, that how things turn out for them is the way it ought to be. When, when we read these stories, we go, yeah, that's how it should work. The, the good guys should always win, and the bad guys should always lose. In other words, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what I thought it was when I was a child, um, uh, were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they did not burn. That's how it should be, that if they're so loyal to God, that anyone tries to harm them, they're not harmed. That's how it should be. We we get this feeling of, of, yes, this is how it should be, even though that's not how it is in our lives. Our lives don't go how it should be. Job's life definitely did not go. In fact, Job's life itself is a strike against the thinking that it will always go how it should go. Sometimes it goes very badly for us, and, uh, and yet, God has not abandoned us, and the story is not over, and we're not hopeless. We're never hopeless, nor do we ever run out of choices. Um, But we have to maintain our trust in God through those times, and that's the challenge for us. In spite of these common threads, each one of these stories, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, uh, they all have their own message to bring. So. Uh, they they share these things in common, but uh, each one of them have what I think is their own defining verse. For instance, when we read that God was with Joseph, that's, that's defining. I don't think it's, it's the message. I think the message is later on when he told his brothers, as for you, what you did, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. I think that's the defining verse of his life. You intended to do evil, but God in his providence, God in working out his great will, used exactly what you did to bring around these wonderful benefits, not only for me, but for you too, to spare all of our lives. With, with Daniel, again, I think that uh, there are two defining verses. Uh, first of all, when he determined not to defile himself with a king's food. Um, he still lived by kosher law. He still lived by the word of God as he understood it, and he continued to orient himself to Jerusalem. He lived in Babylon, but he did not become Babylonian. In fact, he, he always resisted the Babylonian name that was given to him, and that drops out of the story in the last six chapters of, of Daniel. Um, he, he, he embraces who he is in his faith as a Jew. And so he opens his windows every day, and he prays toward Jerusalem. He may be in Babylon. He remembers Jerusalem. That's, that's his faithfulness. I think that's what defines him. And then there's, there's Esther. What's the message of Esther? There's a consensus among Bible scholars today that the purpose of the book of Esther is to tell where Parim came from. And Harim is a special holiday that's celebrated uh, by Jews, and especially in Israel. Kids dress up in costumes. They make these, um, uh, they're not confectionaries, but you know you know what I'm trying to say, don't you? You go to a bakery and you buy a little, that will do. Um, <laughs> whatever you say. Um, and they're called Haman's ears. And... and, and uh, So this is part of their victory over the evil Khaman. And so where did did this Feast of Purim come from? Well, it came from Persia. Let me tell you the story. I don't think that that really covers it. Um, It doesn't explain, that does not explain how the Book of Esther came to be in our Christian Bible. It hardly explains. It explains how it came to be in the Jewish Bible. That's understandable. Um, But for a while, it wasn't included in the list of Old Testament scriptures that Christians embraced. Hey, it did not make it into the Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as we know. In the Dead Sea, Sea Scrolls, we have found either fragments or entire books, every book of the Old Testament, even commentaries on books of the Old Testament, except Esther. So there's, there's got to be a reason. See, someone saw something spiritual in the book of Esther. And they said, yes, this message is important enough. It deserves to be in the Christian New Testament. They, they heard the word of God in Esther. But that brings us to an unusual feature about the book of Esther, is that God is never mentioned. Not by name, not Yahweh never appears, not even generic, God you know, roughly at the same time, Nehemiah had a way of referring to God that was pagan-friendly. He referred to God as God of the heavens or God of the sky, and, and they could absorb that. Um, Yahweh was unknown to them. It wouldn't have made sense. But, but Esther doesn't even have a pagan-friendly way of referring to God. There's no reference to God. God is not present in the story of Esther. And by that, I mean he has no speaking role. He doesn't act directly. In other words, it never says, and then the hand of God. Um, he, he's offstage, so to speak. He, he's not even, you know how someone can, can be part of a story but not present in the story, but is referred to a lot. Yeah, he's not here right now, but he's a great guy. He, you know, he had to go to Europe you know, on business. Well, God's not even off stage. As far as the the story goes, um, and we could easily read this as a secular story, as as a, either as a biography of a, you know a brief biography of Esther's rise to power, or um, you know, as a fairy tale, depending on how you know we understood it. But it is very secular. You have fasting without prayer. You have feasting without praise. And this was not an oversight. The storyteller had to work hard to keep God out. The providence of God plays such a significant role in this book that there'd be no story without it. Just like Joseph, when looking back over his life, he could see God's providence. This happened. It was terrible at the time. I cried and cried and cried. But it turned out to be the very thing that saved all of our lives and promoted me to greatness. Right? That was, he could see God's providence. That's why he could tell his brothers, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And, and the providence of God is here also. Esther grew up beautiful. What's that for? Well, that turns out to be providential. Her beauty gets her into the beauty contest that gets her into the harem, that, that gets her in, into the crown of Vashti. She's now queen in Vashti's place. Um, see, we, we can't write God out of it. Maybe when my daughter Jennifer was five or six years old, and I realized how beautiful she was, and I thought about buying knives and guns and Uh, You know, just to have something to do when boyfriends came over. um, I I began to tell her at night when I'd read a Bible story to the kids and pray for them. I'd, I'd say, you know, Jennifer, you're like Esther. And Esther had a beautiful face. And God has given you a beautiful face. And when you get older, he'll have a reason for that. And I want you to remember that. Because God's going to say, I need a beautiful face. And I want you to say, well, here I am. God, you can use mine. I wanted her to understand that it was grace and providence that put her together as she was. Because I didn't want to lose her to some tattoo artist or something. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, That didn't quite work out, God's, God's providence is so solid through the book of Esther that, that we almost think Mordecai knew it, that, that, look, Esther, here's what you've got to do. And then Esther figured out how to do it, that, that they knew that the outcome was going to be exactly what it was, that it was certain. We just have to do this, and, and everything will turn out right. But the fact is, they could not predict what would happen. They did not know the outcome. Their risks were real and deadly. And if we don't see that in the story, if we don't you know, enter it to that level that we see that, we'll miss something important. God was hidden from their world of sense experience, just exactly as he is from our world of sense experience. And that's what I'm saying. That's the connection I want to make that we can read this and say, oh, they were so fortunate. Look how God's providence worked in their lives. And and I can't see anything like that. Well, they could not see anything like that either. But there it is. And when our story is complete, and we look back, we'll say, wow. Or others will say, wow, God's providence was really working in their lives. I mean, you know, I have to... Get a little bit older to start noticing the important turning points that got you to where you are today. God's providence at work. Were they all your great decisions that got you here? Um, I, I personally don't believe in five-year plans. And when people start telling me their five-year plans, and, you know, and how they, you know, five years ago they planned this and how it happened, I just, um, yeah, you know, it's just not that uh, I, I'm skeptical of what they're saying. Um, I'm just wondering, yeah, but what would it have been if you were on God's five-year plan instead of your own? Um, We cannot see where our lives are going, where our faith in God is is going to take us. We cannot know what our trust in God will result in. We can only know that it will be right. And if we trust and obey, we'll, we'll go where we need to go and God will work out what he wants to work out okay so again what's the message of esther what's the defining verse and uh maybe if you know Esther, if you know the story, you can think about that and uh, and offer an answer oh Terry a plus <laughs> <laughs> you you get the start that's it exactly see if you were fatalistic like You know, we are in some of our lower moments. It would be, if I perish, I perish. (laughs) Okay, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, and if I die, I die. I I realize this is what it is. But no, it's for such a time as this. Um, Mordecai is trying to convince Esther she has to risk her life and go to the king and beg for the lives of the Jews. Because who knows, but what God put her in this position for such a time as this. Now, let's take a quick look at what kind of a time this was. Um, We're given the broad outlines in in this chapter, and that's what I want to look at briefly. Um, Because the scene is depicted so clearly, it could be a caricature and that's why we laughed earlier. It's like, oh man, these counselors of the king—they're so obvious, uh, you know—that they want to maintain their misogynistic control of their women. Um, that is like a caricature. So let's have let's have some fun with this. Um, first of all, since the setting is Persia, we know that this is um, a time of exile for the Jews. Um, they're in a foreign land where they're subject to a foreign language, a foreign culture, and foreign gods. Before we're halfway through the story, their very existence is going to be threatened. They're a minority group that one individual wants to see ethnically cleansed from Persia. All right? They're in exile. Second, it was a time of opulence. It took the king... Six months to show off the glory of his his wealth. Um, and this feast that lasts for seven days. I mean, we look at this, and what comes to mind is either luxury or conspicuous consumption. And I, I vote for the latter. Um, there are three feasts in the first chapter. Uh, so th- the guy likes to eat. Um, in fact, the word feast is a key word in this verse. It, it has to be because it's repeated so many times. The word feast appears more times in Esther than any other Old Testament book. The, the second runner-up is Genesis. The word feast occurs five times in the book of Genesis, 19 times in the book of Esther. And it's you know, not even a quarter the size of, of Genesis. Genesis. So this is, a, this is an op- opulent empire. They are celebrating indulgence, uh, the king's indulgences uh, in his garden, in his palace, in his meals. And, and one indication of this is the way that wine flows through the story. And, and wine, not only here in the first chapter, but specifically in this chapter in verse 8, There were no limits on the drinks. And there's a a marginal reading here. I want to read that. But no one was forced to drink. The king had given orders to the palace servants that everyone could have as much or as little as he wanted. So there's no compulsion to drink. But if you wanted to drink, you didn't have to stop once you started going. Um, So throughout the book, uh, wine is going to flow. And we're going to see... The effect that it had on people's emotions here um, the king was drink, drinking and feeling happy, uh, but a little while later he's furious at the queen and in chapter seven verse seven, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine, so again you know this slight intoxication or or more than slight um, influences what's going on in his brain. stimulants change the brain they it can make the brain uh, more active, or it can dull the brain. It can, it can make the brain exaggerate, or it can turn things off. And you know, I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to drink. And the reason why I say that is because when the king and, and Haman agree on the demise of the Jews, they go off to drink. And And what's this? All of the capital city of Susa is in an uproar. People are confused. What's this message? There are a lot of Jews living there and throughout the provinces, and they just ordered the annihilation of all these people, and they go off to drink. And I would say that, if anything, the king, after getting through that nasty business, just wants to dull his mind and not have to think about the ramifications. The third thing about this this time, this such a time, is that it was a time of tidiness, and that 's not the right word, but what I mean by that is is everything is in its place, and we can 't speak to society of a whole because we don 't know, but we can speak of the royal palace and its grounds we 'll we'll learn later that no one 's no one's permitted to enter through the gates into the palace area who shows any sign. Of illness or poverty or grief. You're not even supposed to be sad, expose the king to sadness. Isn't that kind of like the story of the Buddha, um, who was always protected, lived this very protected and indulgent life, until one day he got out and saw a beggar and you know, saw a miserable person, and, and it, it, it did something to him that he could never shake off? Um, okay, so were the kings of, of Persia. And in the king's court, everything is perfectly complete because everything is in sevens, you know, sevens and threes, uh, both of them being whole numbers. Um, he has a seven-day feast after these 120 days of, of showing off everything. He has seven eunuchs over the the harem. He has seven princes who serve as advisors, and as we noticed but did not read, all seven of the eunuchs are named, and all seven of the princes are named. So it, it's as if to reinforce the seven. He had everything that he could wish. Seven, the number of completion, of, of fullness, of wholeness. He's got, he's got it all, and, uh, and his life is, is full. Fourth, this was a precarious time. As well balanced as the king's court appears, he himself was unbalanced. He was vulnerable to his own fits of rage. He was vulnerable to the counsel of others, to to his advisors here, to Haman. Um, Alexander Green has written, Xerxes is presented throughout the book as the epitome of an unenlightened despot who possesses power but little wisdom. We see how he cannot make a decision for himself by the fact that his advisors are forced to make all the decisions for him, from the unknown Memu in chapter 1 to the villain Haman in chapter 3, as well as to Esther and Mordecai in chapters 5 through 7. Even the king's young attendants are compelled to propose the obvious action that after Vashti's expulsion, he should seek a new queen. Well, his... his uh, vulnerabilities will shape the plot in a tragic way, but then be a part of the reversal, too. The precarious nature of this time is illustrated in this chapter. um, And and this is what caused us to laugh earlier. From verse 2, the king is sitting on his royal throne. And then the word royal appears again in this chapter. It, It appears throughout the book also. Uh, His royal glory we see here. They're drinking royal wine. The queen wears a royal crown. A royal edict is delivered regarding her. And all this royalty is about to take a negative turn. The king commanded. It was a command. It was not an invitation. It was not a request. He didn't say, hey, come over to the party. We're having a lot of fun. It was a command. Come and wear your crown, your royal crown, when you come. Dress in your splendor. Uh, I want everyone to see you. And he's treating her as an object. He, he wants to present her as another sampling of his beautiful possessions. And we read of her beauty twice here. She was beautiful. And he wanted to show off her beauty. But she refused. She refused in spite of the fact that she has no voice. She has no lines. No speaking part in this. Oh, I get to be in the play. Get to be in the play. Yeah, but you don't get any lines. Oh yeah. You're beautiful, but your voice is bad. So, um, no, she, no, she has no, she has no voice. So we don't know why she refused. Oh, I'm having a bad hair day, honey. I can't do this. So I have nothing to wear. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, again, my daughter Jennifer, <laughs> the fourth grade. She, I, you know, th- the third time I said, "Come down here and eat breakfast." I gotta get you to school. Daddy, I have nothing to wear. And I go upstairs, and everything from her drawers is laid out on her bed and floor. And I said, "What do you mean, nothing to wear? Wear that and that." She said, "No, Daddy, that doesn't go together." She already has like the outfits, you know, put together. And I said, "Well, wear those things." But Daddy, they're not that cool. And you know, I okay, so so. OK, Jennifer has a voice. But Vashti had no voice. And to have no voice is to not have a self. She's, she's not included as a person in the story. Think about that. Um, think about it because it happens to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. The Jews have no voice in Persia. They're about to be exterminated. There's nothing they can say about that. And when you lose your voice, when you're not allowed to speak, when your voice is not recognized, you lose yourself. You have no presence. I mean, okay, you can be a voter, right? You're reduced to that. You can cast a ballot. But that's not the same thing as being a person who's heard for their ideas, their thoughts, their beliefs. Her reason for objecting is not given. She has no voice. And it's not given because it's not a concern. You disobeyed the king's command. That's all that matters to them. So when he goes to his seven counselors, they panic and catastrophize. I love the word catastrophize. (laughs) um, uh, Catastrophic thinking. What does this mean? It means to um, irrationally and instantly jump to the worst case scenario. And if you want to know more about it, uh, talk to me. I'll teach you how to do it. Okay, um, yeah. yeah, some of us have it already, yeah. It's built in. Um, now, we did not get this in the Good News Bible. But if you go back and read this in the New American Standard, you'll get it. Only uh, you won't get it as well even as you'd get it if you read the Hebrew. And that is the word all appears over and over in Memu Khan's speech to the king. All the princes, all the people will hear about this in all the provinces, and all the women will, you know, nag their husbands. If a woman could uh, could obey this king, then what about the average guy who doesn't have, you know, one fraction of that kind of authority? If, if a woman can stand up to the king, then any wife could stand up to any husband and refuse to do, as she is told. And and what they, what is driving them is the fear of the repercussions when word gets out. Do you know, Your Highness, what will happen when this goes viral on YouTube? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the whole world is going to know, and it's going to influence every home and the way that it's run now. This is the catastrophizing, that this is going to change everything forever, and we are going to lose our domination over women. Think about that. So um, the, the threat that was raised caused for damage control. Let's do something about it. Let's lop a head off. Let's, let's pass an edict. You know, the king went to them and he said, I need to know in the law. These were all students of the law books of Persia and media. I need to know the law that applies to this situation. And they don't cite a law. Rather, Memu Khan says, let's write into law that Vashti can never appear in your presence again. Now, that's an interesting punishment because she had refused to appear in his presence. Fine, then you can never appear in his presence. You are no longer queen. Right? But they have to write in the law, because there, there isn't anything for it. And this, again, is their desperation. What What is this time, such a time as this? It's a time of strategic suppression of women. You can see it so clearly, and we're sensitized to it today. I mean, we've gone through eras of feminism, and change. And we're nowhere near the end of, of the changes that still need to occur. But we've seen enough to immediately recognize what's going on here and, and to see this nonsense. Keep them in their place. We must keep them in their place. They are, they are objects. They are possessions. They are slaves. They are no different from our slaves that we order around. We tell them what to do, and they do it. And, and every man will be the master of his own home. He'll be king in his own castle. And the wives will remain subservient. All right? It's a time of strategic suppression of women. This just happens to be a trend at this moment. But it's very serious, and it becomes law. So there you have it. In, in light of all of these indications of the times, well, all Esther has to do is be beautiful and compliant. If she's beautiful, she can get into the contest. If she's compliant and bends to the will of others, And this is what she starts doing. She's beautiful. She's compliant to her cousin. We're told that she's been compliant to him her whole life because he ended up raising her. And when her her cousin says, look, you've got to go to the king, she's compliant. She goes, I can't. No one can go before the king unless they're invited. He hasn't called for me in the last month. I can't. Right? Um, But it turns out that her destiny demanded her to be more than beautiful and compliant. She had to be politically savvy. She had to be brave. She had to take risks. She had to be wise in her movements. She had to have perfect timing. And and we'll wonder, she has two opportunities to talk to the the king, and she lets the first one pass and asks for a second opportunity, her timing is is impeccable and and she has to be much more than than the position she 's cast in in the first two chapters of esther she has to she has to break the mold in which she 's been raised, and she has to go against the grain of the trend of Persia at that moment two trends actually one towards women and the other towards the Jews. but maybe the parallels there are supposed to be there. Maybe we're supposed to see that this speaks to a more general issue. Yesterday, in the afternoon, I was flustered. Um, I wasn't sure that we should be going through Esther, that this is the right book uh, for now, for such a time as this. Um, And I was um, was thinking, I'm not going to do that. But then I had these other two ideas, but they weren't brilliant, and I thought, you know, I've been doing so well, and, I've got to, and then I thought, well, yeah, I can have one bad message. But um, <laughs> so, so I I put the leash on the dog and we go for a walk. And and um, we walk by Salt Creek, and uh, the, the sun is, you know, it, it's the late afternoon sun, so it's going down as I'm heading north, and uh, it's kind of in my eyes. But I notice a flicker in the water, and I'm always looking for it, and sure enough really close to the shore, two dolphin fins and um, small dolphins. I don't know. Maybe their parents were out further fighting sharks. I don't know. But <laughs> but these were small dolphins. And I stood there and watched. And there's this one place they did not leave. Maybe there was food there or something. They did not leave this one area. And in one wave, it, it broke further out than the other waves. It, it was a little bit bigger. And they all started moving towards it. I counted six dolphins surfing inside this one wave. Yeah, see, it was beautiful. The timing was perfect. I was down there at just the right time in the afternoon. And I looked at the water at just the right time. And I saw it. There is always such a time as this. We always live in such a time as this. It's either a time of preparation. that just looks like all the normal stuff of life, all the chores, all the routines, all the, all the stuff that occupies us from the time we get up to the time we go to bed. But in that, there's preparation. And then there's the moment when it all comes together and we understand now oh, wow, Um, I did not choose what happened to me. I would not choose it to happen again. But I can see now that this is what it did, and it put me in this place, and now this is my time. Mm -hmm. The psalmist said, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Would you stand with me? (coughs) You're not here today by accident. Look, um, you could be lots of other places. There are all these moms who need your attention, and you know many of us are running off to them now. But here you are. It's not bad. God chose you to be here today. He chose you to hear this message because you live in such a time as this. So may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.